Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. And raise me up to a world living, oh, safe from the storm, in the shelter of your shadow. We are in a new book, Vayikra book of Leviticus, and it reads a little bit like a sacrificial handbook for the priests. But before we move to week after week after week of sacrifices, I wanted to examine just the very first word in the book. It has an oddity in the script. You see the first word is written where the last letter is very small, a tiny little olive. In every Torah scroll, it's written this way. Now, even though the Aleph is a silent letter, and it's very small, if that letter was removed altogether, it would radically change the meaning of this first word. You see, if it says, Vayikra el Moshe, with the Aleph, the sentence translates as, and God called Moses. But without the Aleph, it becomes Vayikar, and the sentence reads, and God happened upon Moses, as if by accident. The Baal Haturim, a Spanish commentator from the Middle Ages, explains that this small olive is to Moses' credit. He was so humble and so unassuming. He didn't want anyone to think that God especially picked him, called on him. Rather, he frames this meeting as if it were a chance encounter by God. Could have happened to anyone. Now, most years when I come across these opening words of our book, I admire the humility and the self-abasement of our leader, Moses. But this week, in the wake of the horrific shootings in Asian massage parlors in Atlanta, I feel chastened by this little olive. There are moments when being silent, attempting invisibility, not taking up your proper space, can become a liability, an impediment to action, maybe even an abdication of leadership. I will admit, this week when I got some emails from the Jewish press, from UJA, from the Cardinal's office, they were wanting responses to the shooting. And there aren't a lot of Asian rabbis to call upon, I'll admit the first thing I wanted to do was go back to my sabbatical. I felt deficient. Do I have to be the spokesperson? But I felt that in this moment, it was a vaikra moment. I realized that even though I am not a leader of an Asian community, I am an Asian leader. 
And it doesn't serve this moment for me to demur and say, who am I to speak? And for the first time in my life, I actually worry about my Korean mother taking a walk outside alone. This week's horrific shooting follows a year of surging anti-Asian hate crime. Stop AAPI Hate reports over 3,800 racist incidents against Asians in the last year. Hate crimes are not always easy to identify, and while the media has been cautious in calling this a racially motivated crime, the Chosun Ilbo, which is a Korean newspaper, interviewed a witness who said that the killer shouted, I'm going to kill all Asians as he, sh as he shot his victims. Now, the Asian community's response in the face of indignity and violence has often been to be quiet. I was part of an interfaith rally yesterday in support of the Asian community, and the Reverend Drew Hyun, an, a Korean-American, explained what he had always been taught. When you're bullied or harassed, just keep your head down. Don't look right or left. Don't make waves. Drew runs a thriving church here in Midtown. He was born in this country. But he shared a story of taking a friend of his who was visiting from Latvia around New York City. And he said that as they were walking through, tourists would come up and approach his friend from Latvia and ask for directions that when they went to restaurants, that the waiters would always address his friend from Latvia first and give him the check. Drew said, my friend was the foreigner, but I, as an Asian American, am the perpetual stranger. Asian stories are underrepresented in the media and in American culture generally. It took to when I was 46 years old that I could see the first movie that actually had multiple Asian leads in it. Crazy Rich Asians, the only movie that I actually paid for to see in a theater twice. Now, it wasn't so great, and the characters were a little bit over the top, but at least they weren't only the Asian seductress or the bumbling Long Duck Dong whose arrival was announced with a Chinese gong the way Asians have long been portrayed and pigeonholed. Now, it might sound superficial, but these caricatures and the absence of Asian-American stories in our culture has made it really easy to stereotype and ignore. And what most Americans don't know is that the rash of hate crimes and the horrific shooting is only the most recent of many struggles that are in the Asian American community. Do you know that the poorest ethnic group in New York City are Asian Americans? I was surprised to learn this statistic three years ago at the Korean American Cultural Foundation's first giving summit. The KACF provides social services and emergency assistance in the Korean community and beyond, it is like the UJA of the Korean community. I checked in with the director of KACF this week. She shared with me that before the pandemic, the unemployment rate in the New York Korean community was about 3%, and it shot up to 26% within two months of the pandemic. 
the forced closure of delis, dry cleaners, nail salons, and more had a disproportionate economic impact on the Asian community in New York. But that's still a story that is not being told. The media has given a lot of attention to the sadistic Atlantic shooter, Atlanta shooter, but very little to the victims. But my mother shared a story that she read in her Korean language daily newspaper, which gave life to the victims. And one detail she told me just broke me, that many of the victims of the shooting not only worked, but actually lived in those salons. They slept in small rooms in the back in a nondescript building on a strip mall. This image, or this reality, is very far from the model minority stereotype of Asians who are good at math and take all the spots at Stuyvesant and Harvard. So how do we move forward? What can we do? The Jewish community knows particularly well what it feels like to be the scapegoat. We know that words have consequences and can lead to dehumanization and harassment and even violence. So one of the first things we can do is not only condemn the violence, but also speak out against the dangerous rhetoric. If you hear someone calling COVID the Kung flu or the China virus, help them understand that those words unfairly inflame and blame. It's also no small gesture to ask ourselves, how do we together create a bulwark against bigotry and hatred in all its forms? We should not have to make a hierarchy of who has it worse right now. Hate is hate. And we cannot allow the model minority myth of the Asian community to become a wedge between Asians and other historically oppressed communities. And there is another thing I want to ask the Jewish community in particular to do right now. Take Passover seriously. To explain what I mean, I want to end with a story. This past fall, my 18-year-old son, Eli, took a semester in Korea to learn Korean and meet my relatives. It was the first time that Eli was spending significant time living outside of New York City. Now, he spent his first 14 days in the country in quarantine in a tiny little 9 by 12 uh, government-sanctioned motel room, um, and he emerged into sunlight after 14 days on Erev Rosh Hashanah, which he spent with a small progressive community in Seoul. He spent Tashlich with Chabad and part of the holidays all alone. He called me afterward and he reflected, Mom, you know, in some ways these were my least Jewish high holidays. I wasn't with my family. I didn't go to all the services. And there are like no Jews here, he said. But in another way, he said, I've never felt more Jewish in my life. How so? I asked him. He said, now I really understand what it feels like to be a stranger. Well, 
if that is all he ever took from all his years of Jewish education, dayenu, as we say, it would be enough. In a week's time, we will all be sitting around our Seder tables. We will not only recount a story of ancestors who were slaves, but we are going to retell and recount a story of ourselves as slaves. We eat the bread of affliction. We taste our tears. We retell our experience as a stranger. Can you remember what it feels like to have the soul of a stranger? The more we can truly inhabit this story, the more we will cultivate our radical empathy. The more we will feel commanded to look out for and even love the stranger because we too were that stranger. Right now, for the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities who feel like the perpetual strangers in America, listening to their stories and empathizing with them would be transformative. We have an opportunity here as we celebrate our freedom to make this story alive right now in our time, to remember that our liberation is tied to the redemption of all people and that stepping into the shoes of the stranger is our religious mandate. God expects us to pay attention. Who is still in Mitzrayim, in the narrow places? We have to remember our tradition, foundational story. Remember, we were once there. And know all of your ways and wisdom. Oh, you keep me safe. And I'd always praise your name. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Shalom,